You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn now in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. And when you found your place, let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, it is our desire that we may understand your word and that you would grant us that illuminating work of the Holy Spirit today to give us the insight into your word that only he can give We pray that you would open our hearts to be obedient to it, help us to understand the truth, and we pray that you would be glorified today through our time and our study and the proclamation of your word. In Christ's precious name, amen. I need to begin with uh, something of a clarification of something that I said last week, uh, because I said something in, well, the reason I'm clarifying this will become obvious here in just a second. Last week, in connection with Bruce Jenner being named Woman of the Year by Vanity Fair magazine, I made this statement, something to the effect that This apparently proves that men are even better than women at being women. And uh, this, I I heard a bunch of cat calls from the audience and suggesting that maybe people might have misunderstood that. And somebody who's very close to me was concerned that you might think something ill of me because I made that statement. And I just want to clarify that that is not, that is not my belief that men make better women than women. That is the implication of Vanity Fair naming Bruce Jenner Woman of the Year. That they're saying, that of all the women in the country, the best woman that year was Bruce Jenner, a man. So that, is, I think, is an insult to women. And that's all that I meant by that. So I, I wanted to clarify that so nobody here thinks that I am a misogynist. I'm not. So we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 now. And Solomon, though the, the chapter is changed, the struggle is still the same. Solomon is seeking to answer in chapter 2 the question that he posed at the beginning of chapter 1, verse 3, what advantage or what profit is there for a man in all of the work that he does under the sun. And in chapter 1, the, 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 the investigation or the analysis of all things, this, this pursuit to answer that question, was very intellectual. It was cerebral. It was uh, uh, Solomon was using his mind. In chapter 1, he begins by observing the cycles of nature. He looks at humanity, and then he looks at history. And he came to the conclusion that when observing nature and humanity and history, nothing is new. Nothing is changed. Nothing is remembered. And so there's no point to any of it. So then verse 12 says that Solomon, or 13, 12 or 13 says that Solomon set his mind to examine and study all the works that were done under the sun. Using wisdom as his guide, he examined all the works that men do. And he came to the conclusion that that too is futility. So then Solomon set his mind, again an intellectual pursuit, to examine and study wisdom and madness and folly and knowledge And he came to the conclusion that that too was vanity and striving after wind. So chapter 1 is an intellectual investigation into this question, what profit or what advantage is there for man in all the works that he does under the sun. Chapter 2 is a little bit different. Chapter 2 is a sensual pursuit. Chapter 1, an intellectual pursuit. Chapter 2, a sensual pursuit. So having 
having come up with no answers when analyzing history and nature and humanity and the works that were done, and even wisdom and knowledge itself, having exhausted intellectually the pursuit for meaning and purpose and advantage and profit under the sun, Solomon then turns to a sensual pursuit and seeks to find meaning and purpose, asking, it's seeking to find if there is meaning or purpose in pleasure itself. So now in chapter 2, Solomon dives into a hedonistic pursuit of pleasure to see if in pleasure, if in gratifying the desires of our flesh and the desires of our mind and our heart and and our bodies, if there is some meaning to be found in any of that. And so now the question in chapter 2 is, what if I pursue with, what if all of my work that I do is aimed at gratifying my desires? What if everything I do is aimed merely at pleasure? If I cannot find meaning intellectually, philosophically, through wisdom and study and observation and nature, Maybe meaning is to be found in just pursuing headlong all that the world offers regarding pleasure and the gratification of our desires. So that's Solomon's quest in chapter 2. And that's what we're going to be looking at in these first 11 verses. We're not going to get through all 11 verses today, but this is Solomon's pursuit of pleasure. And you're going to see here a level of self-indulgence that is mind-boggling in these first 11 verses. This is a man who had literally at his fingertips everything that he could have wanted or desired. And he indulged himself in anything that his heart desires. And so this first part of chapter 2 is all about just living for the moment, living for my desires, seeking nothing but pleasure and pleasure alone. Is there meaning and purpose that can be found in that? Now this is a subject that I think is is very uh, relevant for our modern day culture. We are a nation and we are a culture that is obsessed with pleasure. And not just obsessed, but madly incest, uh, obsessed, not incest, madly obsessed with pleasure, madly obsessed with pleasure, almost to the point of driving ourselves mad in the pursuit of anything that might gratify our desires or our lusts. This is the culture in which we live. And partly we can afford to do this because of the opulence and affluence of our Western society and our Western culture. We are wealthy in our culture beyond the imagination of almost any culture or any nation that has ever existed. Do you realize that? We have a level of, of opulence and rich, richness and wealth in our society that no other nation has ever, has ever observed. You may not have all of the gold that Solomon had, but do you, do you understand that you live at a level of comfort and convenience that Solomon could have never imagined? Even the poorest among us do. You can adjust the temperature in your house to within a tenth of a degree. That's comfort, isn't it? Summer or winter. Doesn't matter. You have that at your fingertips. Food in the refrigerator, the ability to refrigerate food, food, uh, running water, hot and cold. These are, these are conveniences and luxuries and riches that Solomon could have never imagined. And, and that describes our society. We are, we live in the lap of richness and, and this gives us the opportunity and the means to pursue pleasure like no other nation like no other culture has ever pursued pleasure. Other nations and other cultures and people in other times would have spent all day long working in the fields just to bake a loaf of bread for that day. Or walk four miles to the nearest well to, to, pour, to draw potable water to bring home for the day. Or they would spend their days and their resources scrounging about just trying to exist and survive. We have none of those concerns. None of those concerns. We have all of this at our fingertips. And so we can pursue distraction. And we can pursue pleasure. And our culture and our society and our nation does just that. And we are obsessed with, with pleasure. We, we hold in our hands little tiny screens that gives us access to anyone and anything on the face of the planet. Right? Information that nobody else ever imagined. We, we can invent 
distractions to distract us from our distractions. Because our lives are one big indulgence in self-distraction from the monotonies of life. And so the, the wealth with which we live and the wealth that we enjoy gives us both the opportunity and the means to pursue pleasure like no other nation has ever pursued pleasure. And this is especially true in the area of sexual gratification and fulfillment. Because we live in a culture that is obsessed with gratifying those desires. Obsessed with that. And so we must have abortion on demand and free contraceptives. And somebody else has to pay for those so that I can have what I want when I want it in the terms in which I want it. And and that is what our society pursues. And every commercial that we watch, every advertisement that we see reinforces this message that we should pursue pleasure. You need to have this car because this is the funnest one to drive. You need to go on a vacation here because this is the funnest place that you'll ever have been. We name cruise lines after carnivals, right? We have the carnival cruise line because it's all what? Fun, fun, fun till our daddy takes the T-bird away. That's what everybody wants in our whole nation. And so we want bigger and better and more extravagant vacations and longer vacations. And this is what we are told, that we should work less and relax more and enjoy life more and seek and pursue pleasure. So that is our nation and that is our culture. And because our nation has rejected God as Solomon did, the place that we most naturally turn then is to the pursuit of our hedonistic and sensual desires, seeking meaning and purpose in those things. Now, listen, I am not dissing pleasure and enjoyment in and of itself as a thing in and of itself. Pleasure and enjoyment are God's good gifts to us. And not all pleasure is wrong. Not all enjoyment is wrong. There are realms in which these things exist that we ought to enjoy them. And we ought to see pleasure and and enjoyment as gifts that God lavishes upon those whom he loves. And so really what we need, uh, what we need in our culture and in our understanding is a biblical view of enjoyment and pleasure. We need to see enjoyment and pleasure the way God sees enjoyment and pleasure as his good gifts. So in conjunction with Ecclesiastes chapter 2, before we get to verse 11, I want to do this. I want to build a biblical theology of enjoyment and pleasure and see how it is that we ought to use those things and how we ought to enjoy those things for the glory of God and for the good of his people and for the good of his name. Because that really should be our concern with pleasure and enjoyment is using those things. So we don't want to be, we don't want to be aesthetics. We don't want to go from the extreme of of indulging every sensual desire and the passionate pursuit of pleasure as the highest goal and the highest aim and say, well, we reject that, so we're going to go to the other side of the extreme and say, if I enjoy it or it's pleasurable, it must not be God's will. It can't be good. God would never give this to me because it looks enjoyable. So I can't have that or I can't do that because that looks pleasant. And surely God would never bless me with something pleasant. Right? There's no Being, being sensually miserable is not the same as being spiritually mature. So we need to think clearly about these things. We need to have a biblical perspective on it. So as we examine these first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes, we want to see what it was that Solomon pursued, how he pursued it, why he pursued it, and why his quest for meaning and purpose in those things failed. So this passage is all about pleasure. Let me give you an overview of it. We're going to read here together. <clears throat> excuse me. We're going to read here together verses 1 through 11 of this passage. And let me kind of break down sort of the outline of this for you. In the first two verses, well, I'll give you, I'll give you a brief description of verses and then, then we'll read them together. In the first two verses, Solomon tells us about his quest to find meaning and pleasure, and he tells us what the conclusion of that is. So before he ever tells us how he came to that conclusion, he tells us what the conclusion of the study is. Chapter two, verse one, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, 
What does it accomplish? So that's Solomon's quest. And he does the same thing here in chapter 2 that he does in chapter 1. Remember, chapter 1 started with, it's vanity, it's vanity, it's all vanity. Everything is meaningless. And that's the conclusion stated at the beginning of the top of the chapter. And then Solomon substantiates that by telling you, uh, telling us what he observed and how he came to that conclusion. Now he does the same thing at the beginning of chapter 2. He begins chapter 2, I pursued pleasure and it is all futility and vanity. And then the rest of the chapter describes to us and substantiates how Solomon came to that conclusion. So there are four different pursuits that Solomon uh, engaged in to find pleasure and to enjoy pleasure. The first one is wine, verse 3. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. His second pursuit was his works. Verse 4. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. The third one is his wealth. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers. And the last one is women and the pleasures of men, many concubines. So wine, works, wealth, and women. Those are the four things that Solomon pursued. And not just dabbling in these things. Verses 1 to 11 is a headlong plunge into every one of these areas to the extent that Solomon's mind and his body and his emotions became a testing ground for pleasure. All in an attempt to answer this question, what does it profit a man in all the work that he does under the sun? If there can be found no profit in nature, no profit in humanity, no advantage in our works, no advantage in wisdom, madness, or folly, then maybe pleasure is where the key to life resides. And so he pursued pleasure. Now, the whole passage is about pleasure. You'll notice pleasure mentioned in verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 8, and in verse 10, and even in verse 10, Solomon says that his heart was pleased. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then he became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure for my heart was pleased because of all my labor and this was my reward for all my labor thus i considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which i had exerted and behold all was vanity and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun so he's still answering that question what is the profit or the advantage and what is his conclusion having pursued pleasure in all of these capacities through wine through work through women and through wealth None of these things satisfied. Having indulged himself to the nth degree in every one of these realms, Solomon says it is all vanity. It is all chasing after wind. So that's the conclusion of it. Now, did you notice something as we went through that passage? There was one word that was repeated quite frequently. It's the word I. This is a selfish, self-centered, narcissistic pursuit of pleasure. The word I occurs 18 times. The word my occurs 13 times. Me four times and myself four times. And even that lone word in chapter one, the word you, which is the one word that we use to refer to somebody else, there it doesn't refer to somebody else because Solomon says, I said to myself, I will test you with pleasure. So even when Solomon says you, he's actually speaking of himself. The whole passage is about him. He's just, he's a narcissist on a quest to enjoy anything that he can enjoy. 
And this, this self-centered approach, this selfishness and this self-absorbed conceit and narcissism goes hand in hand with the pursuit of pleasure. Pleasure seekers, people who live for pleasure as pleasure is the highest goal, they are the most narcissistic and self-centered people, the most self-absorbed people you will ever meet. There are no exceptions to this. None. None. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what your lust is, whether it is a lust for power or a lust for material possessions, or lust for sensual gratification, or a lust for influence, or a lust for wealth, or a lust for wine, whatever it is, when you make the accomplishment and the enjoyment of your own pleasure the highest goal and the highest aim in your life, then everybody and everything else is seen merely as as a roadblock to the accomplishment of that purpose. Everyone is merely a means to that end. And if somebody doesn't help contribute to your pleasure and in some way advance your own pleasure, then they are somebody to be gotten rid of and discarded from your life. People who pursue pleasure are the most narcissistic, entitled, uh, self-absorbed people you will ever meet. It should not surprise us then that in our nation, which is obsessed with pleasure, and we have become nothing but a nation of pleasure seekers with way too much uh, enjoyment at our fingertips, it should not surprise us that a nation that pursues pleasure is the highest goal, that you will likewise find an entire culture full of people who feel entitled to everybody else to provide for them whatever satisfies their desires. That is why we have an entire generation, an entire nation of people saying, I have a right to health care, and you must provide it. I have a right to abortions on demand, and you must provide it. I have a right to free contraceptives. I have a right to free college. I have a right to free Obama phone. I have a right to free this, and everybody else must provide those things because that pursuit of pleasure makes individuals selfish and entitled. And they feel selfish and entitled because they're narcissists. And they're narcissists because we seek after pleasure. And we seek after pleasure because we have abandoned any sense that anything outside of us is worth living for or is greater than us. This is the worldview of our culture. It is hedonistic. And the more we understand that, the more you understand what is going on around us. If I seek pleasure as my highest aim, somebody else, everybody else, must be used and abused in order to provide that for me. Because after all, I am the center of the universe. And after all, I am just an advanced animal living for the gratification of my own desires. And when that becomes my worldview, then you are nothing more than advanced animals to be used in the gratification of my desires. And I am entitled to whatever of yours I think belongs to me just so long as my drive and quest for pleasure is fulfilled. All right. Now, all of that cultural commentary aside, just so you understand the worldview behind it, let's look at the text. Verses 1 and 2 is what we're going to be looking at today. Solomon's quest and pursuit of pleasure. Solomon says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, this too, it too was futility. Now, almost every word in that first phrase is important. I want you to notice Solomon describes his pursuit of pleasure as a test. I said to myself, I will test you. That word test means to prove something or to evaluate something. Uh, Solomon is not pursuing pleasure just headlong without any thought to it. This is a man, Solomon was an intellectual who planned his pursuit and enjoyment of pleasure. This is something he thought through. It wasn't just a mindless pursuit of whatever gratified him at the moment, but Solomon purposed this, and he decided that he was going to test all of these areas. He's going to test wine. He's going to test his works. He's going to test wealth, and he's going to test women. 
and see if there is any one of these areas of pursuit of pleasure that might gratify him or, dis- or allow him to discover some meaning or purpose that would give, uh, give significance to creation and life under the sun. And so everything that Solomon is doing here is intellectually driven. He is a man who is planning out his test, and then he conducts the test, and then he evaluates the results. And he looks at what it is that he has found, and then he records the results for us so that we might know that we don't have to pursue the same vain quest for pleasure. And again, notice that Solomon is going to test himself. And the word you there, again, signifies the, the, the exhausting self-centeredness of this whole approach. He's going to test himself with pleasure. There's nobody else that was going to be the, the, uh, the testing board for this pursuit of pleasure. It was going to be Solomon. I will test you with pleasure. And this whole passage is about pleasure. It, it is a self-indulgence that we can only imagine. We can only imagine. He had everything in his fingertips and that he used it all to pursue pleasure in every way. And what was the result of it? It is vanity. Now Solomon is a man who is on a hedonistic quest for pleasure. And I want to, I want to give you two words that maybe you are and are not familiar with them. Hedonism and Epicureanism. Hedonism is the quest or pursuit of pleasure and hedonism is the view, the worldview that every moral action that we do must result in some form of pleasure. And that there is no morality to the action itself. What makes it good is not something outside of it, but something, but whether or not it brings me pleasure. So you can think of hedonism as the, the selfish, passionate pursuit of pleasure in every realm and every means, living for yourself. Just do it. If it feels good, just do it. That is the motto of hedonism. Now, Epicureanism is a form of hedonism. It's kind of a lighter form of hedonism. Epicureanism is also a uh, is a philosophy of ethics that says that the human sensuality and human uh, the human senses and the pleasure is the ultimate test of truth. So something is true or good if it brings me pleasure. This was named after Epicurus, who lived in 342 to 270 B.C. So this predates the New Testament by over 200 years. This philosophy. And in the New Testament, we run into Epicureans. Do you remember where? It's in Acts chapter 17, when Paul was on Mars Hill. It says there was Epicurean and Stoic philosophers there who used to sit and listen, and they, and they would uh, sit around and wax eloquent about their philosophy. Well, there were some who had this Epicurean philosophy. Now, Epicureanism is a pursuit of pleasure. It says that pleasure must be pursued. But with the Epicurean, the Epicurean is kind of a highbrow pleasure seeker. The Epicurean believed that pleasure meant not just the gratification of our desires, but also an accompanying avoidance of pain and fear. So an Epicurean pursued pleasure, but not any kind of a pleasure that might bring them fear or pain. So whereas a hedonist would go out and drink himself to the full and party it up with his friends and drink himself almost to the point of oblivion and then wake up the next morning with a headache and a crushing hangover and feeling all of that pain and discomfort, the Epicurean would say that the accompanying hangover from your hedonistic pursuit canceled out the pleasure that you get from the alcohol. So an Epicurean would say it is okay to drink and we ought to drink, but only drink to the point where we do not bring upon ourselves any discomfort or pain or fear. Whereas a hedonist might go out and have all kinds of extramarital affairs and have all kinds of liaisons and then have to live with the fear of getting caught, the fear of losing his family, the fear of losing his reputation. The Epicurean would say you would never do that because you never want to have to live with the fear and the pain that that would bring. So an Epicurean was kind of a a more highbrow approach to seeking pleasure. It was just the desire to pursue pleasure at every turn, but never to the point of having pain or discomfort or any kind of fear associated with the pursuit of pleasure. 
So Solomon is engaging in a hedonistic worldview that says, I am to seek pleasure. And he is doing so in a way so as to test every element of it and report back to us what he found. So what was the result of it? It's vanity. It's vanity, striving after wind. This is the word futility in verse 1. It's empty. It's like breath. It's like a mist that vanishes in the morning. There's no point to this. It too is meaningless. Just like he said at the beginning of chapter 1, it's vanity, it's meaningless, it's senselessness, it's stupidity, it's like a breath that just vapors away. So is this pursuit of pleasure. Now this is Solomon giving to us the conclusion of his test before he actually tells us how he went about testing it. He's telling us at the, at the head of this, this pursuit that I engaged in is complete vanity, it is complete futility, and complete uselessness. And so he says in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I said of laughter, it's madness. The word madness there is kind of related to the same word madness up in verse 17. It refers to uh, sort of an irrationality, but it has a moral element to it as well. So it's kind of a, a moral perversity really than a, than a mental uh, insanity. It kind of has a moral perverse element to it. He says of, of laughter, it is madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? Kind of a dour guy, isn't he? Does this sound like somebody you want to invite over for dinner some night? He thinks that all laughter is madness. Why would he say that? Why is he so down on laughter? This is not the only place where he he denigrates laughter in the book of Ecclesiastes. There are two other places. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. Ecclesiastes 7, 6. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. And this too is futility. Solomon does not have a very high view of laughter. Now why is that? Well, consider Solomon's quest. What is he trying to discover? Is there anything lasting or meaningful or significant or real in this world? And so in pursuing pleasure, all that accompany pleasure, obviously, laughter would accompany almost every element of this pursuit of pleasure. And so he comes to the end and he says the laughter is madness. Why does he say laughter is madness? Well, if I am trying to find meaning and substance and something laughter, something lasting in laughter, what does laughter produce? Produces nothing, right? You can try and drown reality in a sea of frivolity, and you can spend all day laughing, and you can go from, from one sitcom to another, one comedian to another, one funny movie to another, one party to another, laughing your way through life, but when the laughter stops, you're still facing reality, aren't you? Some people try and drown tragedy and despair and depression by just laughing and trying to escape those things by laughter, because laughter for some people is a form of escapism. But you can end up laughing at things that are morally perverse, things that are meaningless, things that are not lasting. And when you get done laughing, you're still facing reality. You're still staring reality in the face. And, and this question still needs to be answered. What's the meaning and purpose of that? To what end do I spend all day laughing? I can hire the best jesters to come into the, the courtroom of the palace and to stand there and entertain me and make me laugh all day long. But when the lights go out and the jesters go home, I'm still standing there with this reality facing me that death, the impending specter of my death, hangs over my head and promises to bury me in obscurity forever. So what point is laughter then? To deny these realities and to try and use laughter as nothing more than a brief reprieve from the monotonous cycles of life. It's just madness. That's not lasting. Because when you crawl into bed at night, reality is still reality. The pain is still the pain. 
and laughter cannot ease an aching heart. And so it's madness. It's emptiness and futility. And the same can be said of pleasure. In fact, that is what he says. A pleasure, what does it profit? You see, when the wine is all used up, the wealth is all spent, and the women have all gone home, where are you at? You're still at the end of it all. And you have exhausted yourself in pleasure? To what end? Because when the pleasure is all used up, Solomon says, you're, you're still facing this reality. What then is the profit to a man under the sun in all of his labor? Is there any meaning and any significance to any of it when it is all gone? That is what vexed him. So that takes us to the end of verse 2. We're going to look next week at verse 3 and wine and Solomon's pursuit of works. Uh, I should have warned you at the beginning, there's really no convenient place to break this passage because it's all kind of one long, long argument. Um, having come to the end of all of his pursuit of pleasure, there really was nowhere else for Solomon to go. And I want you to notice the, the pattern here that Solomon has pursued. There is, Solomon views, views pleasure and laughter the way that he does because there's no room in Solomon's thinking for a beneficent God who lavishes his people with good things to enjoy. See, it's all life under the sun. And once you remove God from that vantage point or that picture, we are stuck again with just things that are not lasting and things that only enjoyed for a brief period of time. But in the end, no real answers to this question, what is the point? What is the meaning? What is the significance of it? There's still nothing solid at the end of that. The only way that there is anything solid in a worldview or in anybody's life that you can hold on to and it gives us meaning is God and God alone. And when we remove that from the picture, we are left with what? Futility, emptiness, and vanity. So we'll look next week at Solomon's pursuit of pleasure through wine and through works. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, you are so good to us, good to us beyond measure. We do enjoy such luxury and wealth and, and pleasure and enjoyments from your hand. You are the giver of all of these things, but we pray that you would help us to never seek them as an end in themselves, but to keep them under the purview of your providence and your sovereignty and things to be enjoyed as good gifts that you give to your children, you give to those who please you. We thank you that you have given to us the wisdom of this book and that you have warned us against the passionate pursuit of pleasure as an end in itself, as some quest of meaning. We know that meaning ultimately derives from you, and we want to find our sense of significance and lasting and abundant joy in Christ and in Christ alone. Thank you that you have made a world in which we are truly empty unless we seek our fulfillment and our, and our fullness in Christ and what he has done. We pray that these things in the book of Ecclesiastes might turn our hearts to you and that you would be glorified and honored through our, our attempts to, to glorify you in this world by sharing these truths with others. May you be magnified in and through your church, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.